Welcome to the School for Mystics podcast with Misha Saido and Marina Galan. In this podcast, Marina and I will share with you unique and contrarian perspective of how our lives really work. Hello everyone and welcome to the episode number three for School for Mystics podcast. Hello Marina. Hello Misha, how are you today? I'm doing awesome, especially knowing what we're gonna be talking about today. <laughs> it feels so good. So tell me what we're gonna talk about today. Tell us what we're gonna talk about today. Well, today we are going to talk about how to feel better. Right. <laughs> and you know, especially in the, the current circumstance, everyone is now, and especially for those who are on the front line, I think this is so important. I also know that the circumstance doesn't really matter because you know, there is always a crisis for someone. It's just, it happens in different times for different people. But there is always a crisis. The only difference today with the virus is that it seems we all see that at the same time. And for those people who are in crisis, that is now aggravated, by common crisis. Our topic today is so important. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Like on a regular basis, we we are all already looking to feel better. But right now that that search seems to be enhanced in so many cases. You know, I was yesterday thinking about the nature of happiness and the, the, the way how people understand happiness. And I thought that's interesting that for many happiness is absence of suffering, absence of pain, absence of negative emotions, which is the opposite. And for them, it would be happiness. So if many would believe that if you don't feel pain, if you don't have this negative part of life, You'll never see the uh, beautiful part because there is no contrast. And many would say that I want to suffer in order to feel joy, in order to feel happy. Okay. <laughs> and I, and I, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And some will say, I don't want to be happy. I want to be successful. Or, I don't want to be happy, I want to be smart. Like there is a choice. You know, like there is, like, it's like a buffet. Or, yeah, loved. Yeah. And they also think that it's, if you decide from time to time to feel happy, you need to accept everything in life, which is kind of a smart idea. But the problem 
is that they think it is a circumstance, the event, the situation that makes people feel a certain way. And this is the biggest illusion, is what I think in yogic tradition is called maya. Right? It's the illusion that there is something in our life that can make us feel better, happier. Like, oh, if I would just get this job, or if I would just make enough money, or if I would just, you know, meet this person, then I will be happy. Then I will be loved. So in reality, people don't want love. They just want to feel better. They don't want success. They just want to feel better. They don't want to get rid of pain. They just want to feel better all the time. And everything we do and everything we say is in order just to feel better. Now, Marina, is there a way to hack this illusion? To hack the matrix? <laughs> yeah. Okay. The short answer is yes. But it is not a to-do. It is realizing something. So it's a I am going to start with little things about that you said. Yes. So first, yes, we think we want riches or success or fame in order to be happy. And it would seem like we're choosing that instead of happiness. But in reality, we are choosing that because we believe that that will then make us feel a certain way. So we are confusing the end and the means. Yes. And then, of course, because the rational mind understands through opposite, opposing concepts, we make up a story that we need the quote-unquote positive side of it in order to feel that happiness. What we are doing with that is that we are taking wholeness and we are dividing it opposing it, rejecting half of it, and desiring or attaching ourselves to the other part of it. The feeling we are truly, really, honestly looking for is the feeling of wholeness and complete and completion, not the feeling of just one of the opposing sides. But it is so difficult to understand that they, that they're that the feeling of wholeness is the, the feeling we are looking for because there is that side of pain and suffering and loss involved. So the invitation is really to realize that wholeness, I mean, yes, the rational mind will only understand happiness if it understands pain. But what we are talking about and what we want to point to here is a better or a happiness, because a better is already opposing, right? But a happiness or a wholeness that is of a different nature. And that implies the possibility of being at peace with any emotion that is present in the moment. So being at peace with joy, 
as much as being at peace with anger or sadness or hopelessness. And finding that space in which we can be at peace with that is really the feeling that we are looking for. That, that unalterable, inalterable, constant well-being that has to do with wholeness, not with only one extreme of the opposing contents. Yes? So if, if we were to talk about it in terms of a metaphor, we would say it is not about turning the nightmare into a beautiful dream. It is about realizing the nature of the dreamer. And from the understanding of the nature of the dreamer, the content of the dream is irrelevant. Tell me more about the nature of the dreamer. Hmm. Well, the nature of the dreamer is the one that can experiment dreams. Right. That can have the experience of dreams. But when you understand the value of experiencing, per se, what you experience is less important. Yes. So in our lives, in our everyday lives, it would be understanding the difference between what consciousness does and what consciousness is, right? So we can become aware and be conscious and experience both happiness and suffering. But the miracle is not in experiencing joy versus suffering. The miracle is in experiencing itself. Right? So, like, it's a little bit like, talk, let's talk about vision for a while. If you are going to judge the seer according to what he sees, you are missing the point. It is not about what our eyes can or cannot see. It is about the fact that they can see, regardless of what they are seeing. You see, the value of your vision is in itself, not in the content of what it sees. The same with everything else, right? The, the value of hearing is not in what you can hear. It is in hearing itself. The value of consciousness is consciousness itself, not what we become conscious of. You know, Marina, I think the problem shows up when we forget it is a dream. When we are so deep in our nightmare that the only thing we want is not even escape because we understand it is a dream, <laughs> but we just want that to stop. And while I understand that it's amazing to witness and, uh, you know, see your nightmare as just a horror movie that you would see in the theater. But I still prefer good dreams. Well, yeah, from the, from the point of view of the rational mind, of course you do. Yeah. But, but you see, the, <laughs> the alternative to experience is not experiencing. Mm -hmm. 
Do you see? So you're using a content with the nature. The value of the dreamer does not depend on what it is dreaming or even how vividly it is dreaming it. Or even, or even in how much he enjoys or doesn't enjoy the dreaming. It is in dreaming itself. And so the space of feeling better does not imply feeling certain emotions. It implies feeling everything and being okay with it. And that is the ultimate freedom. When you give yourself, when you recognize the freedom you have to experience anything without having to turn it into a concept about yourself or a value system or a, anything. Can, freedom. Can we talk about how at any moment we can understand that we are watching the movie, that it is a dream. No matter whether we think the movie is great or really horrible, we can understand this is a movie. And I was thinking about sharing um, this you know, body of work that I'm developing for some time. It's the, 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 what we call the method of reactive transformation. And uh, I wanted to share the Emerald technique with you the one that I have created. And I wonder what you think about that and whether you can add some um, important parts to, to the technique, to the method itself. So the Emerald is the abbreviation. Abbreviation, okay. Yes. And the idea is that every letter means something. That's the definition of abbreviation, right? So the first E would be the event. Generally, it is the um, event that will trigger us. For example, uh, my wife come home from, you know, and I think she's exhausted and I think she's irritated. And she, tell me, she, she tells me words, like she says words, right? So that's the event. This is what happened. The next one, once, like as the... Uh, you know, as a rational mind, I will try to describe the event happening to my consciousness. I will assign a meaning. So the next M of the emerald is meaning. So I will assign meaning to the event happening. Now, already there is a huge lesson in, in the first part because meaning is not the event. Meaning will drive emotion. Event itself will never drive an emotion. It needs a bridge between an event and emotion. So the bridge is a meaning, is a belief, is the um, you know, uh, negative thought or positive thought we have. Now, a meaning is just a story. It's just the thought that arises in your head that tries to describe the event to yourself. Now, once you feel the thought, or once the thought has arised, then the, the next moment you feel the emotion. I think my wife is irritated by me not 
you know, cleaning the house. <laughs> and suddenly, I feel irritated myself. So the next E is emotion. Now, when I feel irritated, then the reaction comes up. So how do I, what do I do when I feel irritated? In my particular case, I start defending myself or attacking. When I'm irritated, I uh, uh, allow you know, myself, and that has been my story for many, many years, thanks God, not anymore. But my used-to-be reaction was to attack. So I would start, you know, saying words back to her. Okay, so that's the reaction. So the next part is, what is the actual result of that reaction? So this is the A for, for the abbreviation, emerald. So we are in um, second A here. What is the actual result? And there are always just two results. L, more love, D, destruction. So that's the, the whole emerald idea. And when I know that the result is not love, but destruction, because obviously here I'm destroying our relationship, I see the whole movie going. The whole movie, the whole plot, from the beginning to the end. Or I would say... If a, a quick piece of the movie, because the movie is the life itself, right? But there are movies within the movie. So many plots and so many uh, lines of this story. So I see this small piece, I can dissociate myself and understand what's going on. And I see, okay, oh my God, that event was not supposed to end like that. So... At this moment, I can do a few things. Number one, can I assign a different meaning to this event? Or, whatever I'm thinking, is it the truth? Is it really the truth? And generally, the question is no. And when I understand that it can't be right, it is still a story. It's a lie. And the more emeralds I have in my life, the more lies I have in my life. And in this case, what is the way back to the heart? Back to the truth. So tell me what you think. Okay. I really love your emerald analogy. <laughs> It's really cool. But you see, if, if you want to find truth, you have to go before the emerald. You have to go before the event. Because the way you are explaining things is as if we were actually able to perceive reality as it is. And we can't, you see, before the event, there is already structures of thought in our mind that will veil and filter the way we perceive the event. 
So what we are perceiving is the event through our thinking, not the event per se. That gives you a clue to the fact that even your perception of the event, right, is already biased. 100%. 100%. And so from there on, the, the event itself, the perception of the event itself is biased. The meaning, therefore, is biased. The emotion, therefore, is biased. The reaction, the actual result, everything is biased from before the event. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, knowing this, being aware of this, allows you to perceive the event with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Like not, not necessarily believe what you were seeing or what you were perceiving. Now, interestingly, the way wisdom operates in human beings takes into consideration every single aspect of this, even before the emerald. So wisdom takes into consideration your conditioning, your psychology, but it also takes into consideration your ability to respond and not react. You see, our wisdom is not only informed by us, it is informed by everything, the entire system. And so when you allow yourself to operate from wisdom, You are responding, not reacting. Mm -hmm. So yes, the the more emeralds you have in in your life, the the more lies you have, because it's all just a construct. Absolutely. And in order to discover truth, you know, a very good friend of mine once said, in order to discover truth, you can go and start a pilgrimage that will take a very long time, or you can just let go of all your opinions and see what is left. You know, I'm thinking about my clients who are so stuck in what they think is real. And I'm always thinking of the ways, because you see, you can tell people as much as you want that it's not real and you you need to go back to your wisdom but you don't understand it until you understand you can kind of like it conceptually or you can resist it conceptually and you might think oh this is esoterics like this is crazy um you know, this is not like what I'm experiencing today. And they would trust their experience versus someone else's words. Right? But what I like about this idea of emeralds is that it is the um, direct evidence-based, you know, tool to show you you are in the story. So the emerald 
is the concept that is based on the lie itself. The beauty of it is that this concept can show you that everything is a story. So it's a convincing or persuasion method, not a um, freeing method, not the way how you escape reality, not the way how you free yourself. Because you free yourself, as you said, through deeper understanding. You free yourself from all these concepts by seeing the truth directly. The problem is that, unfortunately, we have only form to point towards the truth, and form itself is a story. So we, it's funny that we are using lie to point towards the truth. Well, yeah, but it's the only thing we have, right? Right. So again, we are left with words to point to truth. We are left with the form to point towards a formless. But it's the only thing we have. So you enter the world of paradox where form both keeps you limited and frees you depending on how you go about it. Yeah. Now, what you are pointing to ultimately is the essential. The essential, by definition, needs to always be present. Everything else is temporary. Right? So, if you want to look for truth, like they say in the Mahabharata, know that for something to be true, it needs to be found in your bloodstream, in the town square, and in the galaxies. If it's not in all three of them, stop looking there. Can I ask you another question? Okay. <laughs> Can you feel sad and peaceful and happy at the same time? Yes. How do you do that? Well, you find the space in which, you know, the other day I was talking to someone and I remembered that uh, Native Americans used to speak of feelings as companions. So instead, instead of saying, I am sad, they would say, sadness is with me today. But you see, language points to understanding. So you see that the way they understood it, the feeling could not possess you, could not inhabit you. It was just a companion. And the companions are there to walk certain part of the journey with you, but they leave. Now, every emotion we have brings valuable information about what is going on in our psyche, about what is going on in our wisdom, about what is going on in our inner landscape. They are, they are the best friends that are letting us know what is going on. They, 
they, they are the inside people. <laughs> they know what's going on and they are here to let us know what is going on. So whenever you can feel sadness or anger, those are signs that you are looking at things from a very personal point of view, that you are believing the story. And so in a way they are letting you know that you are doing that, but at, at the same time they are presenting the invitation to let go of that story, let go of that lie, you know, hold it more lightly so you can find another space for more to experience it. How on earth can you not be happy to have such friends that are coming to let you know of better possibilities? The problem is that we have learned to associate quote-unquote unwanted feelings with ourselves and what that could mean about us. You know, and every single culture is filled with these associations. Like, boys don't cry. Or you should be grateful. Or you do not look pretty when you are upset. Or, you see? So we learn to associate feeling a certain way mm -hmm. with that meaning something about us. And so we learn to mistrust the friend because we think they are here to let us know something bad about us. When in reality, they are just trying to help. They are just letting us know that we are holding on too tightly, that we're looking at it from a very personal perspective, and that there is another possibility of letting go of that and discovering just new ways of experiencing life. So I remember, I remember a time in my life when, when I became really intimate with sadness. And we developed an amazingly beautiful relationship. I don't think I have ever experienced sadness the same way again since then. There is such exquisiteness in every single emotion, if we understand what it's there for, if we have the courage to sit with it and listen to what they have come to say. You know, I'm listening to you and uh, I'm living my own story in, in my head as I'm listening to you, which is amazing. Like, I suddenly recall two events. One was one day I, I woke up in the hotel room and uh, I could not see anything. My eyes didn't work. And um, also, uh, my back didn't properly work. But there was a business meeting and I, somehow I had to drag myself to that meeting. So I'm, I'm, it's early morning and I'm trying to go blind. Uh, and I know that I need to take a bathroom because, uh, you know, I need to prepare myself for the meeting. But uh, I, um, I just try to kind of recall where the bathroom and where are my uh, clothes and all of that. So I go to, to take a shower and I'm trying to understand this what was my first night, night in this hotel and I'm trying to understand how this shower works. 
so I can see anything. I'm trying, like, I'm using my hands to understand where is the hot water and uh, how to switch on the shower, etc. And I find that there are like three buttons. And, you know, like these circular buttons that you kind of turn and uh, it's supposed to work. So I'm turning all these kind of buttons and, you know, just crazy stuff happens. Uh, First of all, the shower goes from all directions at me. So it was like, you know, sideways and and, and, uh, like bottom up and, uh, you know, from up, up, down. And I'm like thinking at the same time, the, the, the water is incredibly cold. So it means that I haven't figured out like how to, to make it warm. And I'm standing in this cold water and the shower goes from all the directions. And I assume that uh, it's going to be a lot of water in the bathroom. And I'm laughing and I'm thinking, holy moly, these people, they have ability to complicate everything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was like sad that I could not see. It was sad that I had this like excruciating pain in my back. But at the same time, I felt really good because I thought these innocent creatures, they have this innate ability to complicate everything that is so simple. And the next flashback I had was about, so I'm, 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 I'm sitting in, in the workshop and there is a girl and she's telling this story of um, being in the concentration camp when she was a kid. She was eight years old and uh, they made her beat other children and uh, it pretty much destroyed her whole life she's like she, probably now she's in her 40 45 so she's she's from bosnia and her so uh, her so like that's that that part of, of the world and i'm crying myself out you know uh, and like there were like two or three days and uh, there were stories like that and i'm, I'm crying myself out and i feel like incredibly sad like i have never felt as sad um before and uh i see how um these experiences these perceived experiences destroyed so many lives and and then i'm when i'm looking back that was the best moment of my life as well because it has informed everything i was going to do after Everything that, you know, I was supposed to do. Everything that finally my ability had, you know, met its goal, its target. And I knew what to do next in the world. So your explanation about sadness as companion, you know, is incredible as well and any feeling and any emotion and your own experience is beautiful as well can i ask you last thing yes but can i say something about what you just said first yeah okay can you see how in your story you were perfectly at peace with being sad yeah and that is what allows wisdom then to inform you see 
that is what allows sadness to inform. The problem is when we are feeling sad and we want to change the feeling, or when we are upset and we want to change the upset. Our disagreement with what is, regardless of whether what is is outside or inside of us, is what creates suffering. Sadness per se cannot create suffering. It is our rejection of it that creates suffering. So you see, as soon as we start realizing this, we enter a different kind of relationship with our feelings, with our emotions, because they are not something to be changed, altered, stopped. They are just companions for the moment and they are bringing information about the moment and about what I am doing with the moment. That, that is feeling better without needing to feel better, you see? Being at peace without needing to change the emotion. That is a game changer. Okay. Question. Last question. Last question for us today, Marina. How do you get to this understanding as fast as you can? <laughs> But see, you're trying to do it fast already. You're trying to change it already. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, there is a trap in my question. And... Well, Here's the thing, there are many ways to go about it, but it takes as long as it takes and we make ourselves miserable for as long as we can until we can't and then we surrender to understanding. The possibility of surrendering is always there. The possibility of surrendering to understanding is here now. And yet, there is an element of grace in it. It is not only about us. So there is an, there is an intention to offer ourselves to that understanding, to bring ourselves as an offering in exchange for understanding. But it is still not just that. You cannot force the process. Just like you cannot peel the skin of a snake off. It, the process takes its time, see? So it, it needs to come loose. Otherwise, if you pull the skin, the next skin will be wounded, will be hurt. Or the Sufis and the cotton flower. You need to wait for the cotton flower to be ready. And then you touch the cotton and it falls off the flower. You cannot pull the cotton from the flower. Well, you can, but you don't want to, because then the flower becomes wounded as well. The plant becomes wounded as well. And then the wound becomes a new layer too. Do you see? A new layer of lie, a new layer of conditioning that needs to be worked on. So there's an invitation to radical kindness here, because it would seem like the process is something to do. But when you realize that the process is already complete and it is just 
a realization of the presence. And realization cannot be forced. There is even a deeper invitation to rest in that truth. Does that answer your question, Kamisha? Yeah, and it's especially when you say the radical kindness. Tell me, do we help those who do not seek our help when we are radically kind? Why would you want to help the ones that are not seeking your help? I don't, but I see that a lot of people want to to rescue someone who doesn't want to be rescued. Yeah, but you see, they're falling for the illusion. They are mm-hmm. falling for their need to change things. They are not at peace with what is. So, like your friend Rumi said, if they don't want to wake, if they don't want to wake up, if they want to continue dreaming, don't listen. Yeah, don't bother them. They're sleeping. Allow them to have the full cycle. Yeah, radical kindness. Yeah. You see, our trying to change others, we do it out of love, Misha, because we are seeing better possibilities, and so we want them to know about these better possibilities. Mm-hmm. But we are interfering, and we are getting lost in our preference. Yeah. So there is beauty and there is love. But we need to go back to kindness. Mm-hmm. A teacher of mine used to say that if it's not kind, it's probably not wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, like old. No fairy tale. I, I don't remember exactly what was it, but it was about between being right and being kind. You always choose to be kind. And then you can go. Yeah. Beautiful as always, Marina. Thank you. Thank you, Misha. Thank you for listening to the School for Mystics podcast.